Good morning. I'm so happy to get to have the chance to continue the message series that we've been working through this summer as we're thinking about, well, maybe some of you can remember, uh, what, what are we really talking about? What's the big overarching theme of what we've been talking about so far this summer in the series of messages that Pastor Kyle has been preaching for us? Discipleship, correct. And discipleship, um, what does that mean? Anyone have a quick answer? Well, it's kind of a broad question, isn't it? I know. You can be brave, you can step out, and there's probably several good answers you could give. We'll be talking about it specifically this morning in one particular context. Bring forth the word to others, okay, and in particular to the person that I am discipling, or if I am being discipled, I'm bringing forth the word, I'm, I'm allowing God's word to penetrate me as someone else ministers it to me. Any other notes that we should make before we jump in? This is helping us get context on where we are in the series so far. What was it again, David? There's proof. Reproof. There sure is reproof. There's reproof if you are out of the way. And reproof teaches us something very important. It teaches us, hold on to your hat, that we actually belong to God. That's what we're told in Hebrews chapter 12. If you want to know if you really truly belong to God, the question you might ask yourself is, do I experience this chastening when I step out of the way, when I'm not following the one of whom I am a disciple? And so, because he loves you so much, he's always bringing you back into his way. And that's, that's our experience. Anything else that we ought to note? Just giving ourselves context. We've talked about reproof. We've talked about the fact that we're allowing the word of God to be uh, taken deeply into our hearts. We're giving it out to others. Any other final note on discipleship as we jump in to the context? All right, discipleship is being a follower and making other followers. In this case, we're following the great discipler, the Lord Jesus. And as we follow him, so then we show others how to follow Christ. And that's actually Paul's model. If you, if you think back to his own words, he said, follow me. But he didn't end there. He continued, as I follow Christ. And so we follow Jesus and as we're following Jesus, we're demonstrating to other people how to join us in following him. That's really what we're talking about this morning as we, as we think about discipleship. We're thinking about really uh, what the nature of discipleship is and what its goal is. So the, so the nature of discipleship is that a disciple, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher. So in terms of station, in terms of place, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, Jesus says, when he is fully trained, get this, will be like his teacher. So, so this is the nature of what it means to be a disciple, that, that you're in the process. This is very important to everything we're going to say from here on. A disciple is a person who is in process of being changed into the same image as his discipler. You're starting to look a little bit more like the person who is pouring the word of God into you. In this case, we are, Jesus says, specifically his disciples, and through the process of growth, and that means change, we are looking more and more like Jesus. That's the nature of discipleship. That's what it's all about. But the goal of discipleship is also important because 
Paul tells us, and thinking in terms of discipleship in the book of Ephesians, he says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So the objective, this is the goal of every disciple, is to imitate God. The nature is that we're being changed to look more like him, and our goal is that we are actively pursuing the imitation of God, that we're imitating him, that we're, that we're changing from what we are, from our self-centered ways, to lives that are characterized by love and selflessness, just like Jesus. Now, it's significant that this change, this becoming like our teacher, is actually at the heart of one of the most beloved verses in the whole New Testament. You can probably recite it. Romans 8, 28, it says, and, that we, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So this is at the very core, this change. And, we can, and so I want to ask you a question. What is the good that God is after in the lives of his people. Let me read it again. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God is working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So what is this good that God is after in your life? I think we can say with confidence he's after every good in the lives of his children. He wants to crowd your life with everything that is best. So that in one sense, the new creation, that's you and me, reflects all the good that he began in the old creation. You can remember that he ended every day of creation saying, it was good, it was good, it was good. Only even better now in the new creation than it was in the old. He's, he's working for the good of your future and the good of your past. He's working for the good of everything that concerns you because everything that concerns you is a concern to him. He's working all of these things together, every tiny detail for your good. But, but did you know there's a specific good that relates to what we're talking about this morning that is found in this passage? Yes, God is working everything together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Everything he's working together for your good in every detail. But there's a specific good that, that Paul is after as he presents Romans 8.28 to us. And it's found in the next verse. It's found in Romans 8, 29. This is what he says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. Hear this. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The very best of every good that God is working out in my life and in your life is this. That we look more like Jesus. That's the apex of goodness. The absolute pinnacle of everything that is good that God wants for you is that you look more and more like his son. Now, that's what discipleship is about. That we grow through the process of change from what we are and what we were to what we are becoming. And what we are becoming is more like Jesus. So this morning we're addressing that process. That process of change. The process by which God is doing good to you, to those who love him, to those who are his disciples. And, and so we're here to walk together with Jesus, to learn more about who God really is. We're here to learn more about the character of God, because the character of God himself informs everything about life. 
and is actually the agent of personal change. In other words, we could say that knowing God, really knowing Him, changes everything. And toward that end, we're looking this morning, we're looking through this lens at a very familiar passage. And we'll be doing that for the next couple of messages as well. So this is the first of a three-part series in which we are going to begin talking about the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6. And so if you, if you want to turn to Matthew 6, that's where we're going to be centering our attention this morning. In Matthew chapter 6, it begins in verse 9 with Jesus instructing his disciples in these words. He says, pray then, verse 9, chapter 6, the book of Matthew, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In this prayer, Jesus is pressing his true disciples to remember that praying is for God. Praying is for God. And when we pray with God in view, instead of ourselves in the center of the vision, we find that God does an unthinkable, unimaginable thing. He doesn't just change our circumstances. He changes us. So we come to this model prayer in the middle, as you know, of a sermon. The most famous sermon in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. And to this point... This sermon has been characterized largely by contrast. And I'm going to walk those through with you so you can understand why it is that at this point Jesus comes in with a prayer and with a model of how it is that we actually relate to God and in so relating to God experience the change that is so necessary as demonstrated by the three sets of contrast that he paints before this point. So hold on. I know it's going to be kind of fast moving through the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, I want you to catch this because it's really important that we understand why this prayer is at this particular place in the message so that we can experience change just like those to whom Jesus originally preached could experience change. And so here are the contrasts. The contrasts in the context, the first is found in the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, the first few verses, you'll remember that this is often called the Beatitudes. And here Jesus lists nine different ways that people can experience the blessing of God. Really, he's talking about, in this contrast, the difference between kingdom life and the natural life. So this is the first great contrast that paves the way for us to understand the Lord's Prayer there's a difference between kingdom life and the natural life. And in fact, the difference is radical. It is worlds apart. You can hear what Jesus says here in these verses. He opened his mouth, it says in verse 2 of chapter 5, and taught them, the people listening, saying, Blessed, and that word blessed could be interpreted happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And finally, happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I wonder if you've made an observation as I've just read those few short verses about what Jesus calls happy. Well, it doesn't sound very happy, right? I, I mean, this sounds upside down. I mean, just take the last one, for instance. He says, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Hello? I don't think of persecution as being a happy thing. I think that's something to be avoided. But Jesus is making a great contrast. A contrast between our natural way of thinking and the way that we think when we are servants of the king, when we are working in the kingdom of God. Let me just show you how great this contrast is by taking the very first one. And the first one is that happy are the, you could say, the humble. And in other words, happy are those who are not Honored. That just is upside down to my way of thinking. I, I think that it's happy when I'm honored, when other men call me good, when other people see things that I've done and say, this is a guy who's worth respecting. And Jesus says exactly the opposite of everything that's inside my heart. He says, actually, it's happy are the humble. Now, this was even more extreme in the culture in which Jesus spoke it. In an article in 2011, a guy by the name of John Dixon wrote these words. And I want you to catch what was happening in the culture that would have been exactly contrary to what Jesus is here teaching. He said this, Whereas the ancients draw a straight line between greatness and honor, the West draws a line between greatness and humility. So it's, in other words, a little bit easier for us to understand this because we can say, yeah, I mean, there's a humility that leads to greatness. But that wasn't the case in the times of the ancients, in the times of the New Testament. He said, it's well known that humility was not a virtue in Greco-Roman ethics. In fact, the word meant something like crushed or debased. It was associated with failure and shame. He goes on to say, in the 147 pithy maxims of the Delphic canon from the 6th century BC, so six centuries before Christ, Considered This was considered by the ancient Greeks to be the sum and substance of the ethical life. He said there is no mention of the theme of, let alone the word, humility. Whereas today it would be difficult to list ten and not include humility. They just didn't even have a place for it. There was no place for humility in the ancient world. It was associated with failure and shame. He said, this John Dixon writes, in its place was the love of honor. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is communicating. Exactly the opposite of what Jesus is communicating in the very first of the Beatitudes. The love of honor. He said the logic was compelling. If one had achieved great things, it was only right and proper that full recognition be given. Achievement deserves public praise. Humility before the gods, of course, he says, was appropriate, primarily because they could kill you. Humility was advisable before emperors for the same reason. But humility, he says, concluding this, humility before an equal or a lesser was morally suspect. 
It's not the way you go. He says morally suspect. It upset the assumed equation, equation that merit demands honor. Because honor was the proof of merit. Avoiding honor implied a diminishment of merit. It was shameful. Now can you hear what Jesus is saying? Now can you hear how radical this difference is between kingdom life and the natural life? And Jesus is pointing out to us that there are reasons why we aren't happy. You can list nine of them right here. If I'm not happy, instead of looking for something to satisfy that with some possession or some relationship, Jesus says, try checking your humility. That's what he says. He says that in nine different ways. Try, check your humility, he says. He says, check your, check your um, mourning. Are you mourning or are you trying to pursue a life that's a party? How about your meekness? Are you meek or are you standing up for your own rights? How about your hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Or are you really, frankly, pretty self-satisfied? Check your mercy, Jesus says. Happiness is not to those who extract what they believe is due to them. Check your purity. This is not about, happiness is not for those who do whatever they desire, even though that's what our culture will tell us. He says, check your peacemaking. Are you just trying to steer clear of conflict and so keep your life relatively happy? He says, check your persecution level. Yes, happiness is not for those who just avoid trouble and trial at any cost. And finally, he says, happy are the hated the hated, not the loved. So Jesus gives us a series of ways to check our happiness and say, if you're not happy, instead of looking at all the things that our society says we ought to be doing to make ourselves happier, instead of trying to accrue honor for ourselves or avoid conflict or stay clear of persecution, he says, how about if we turn that entirely upside down? Check your humility Check your desire to make peace in difficult situations. Check all of these things. This is the baseline for true happiness. So there's a huge contrast. I hope you can feel it right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. A huge contrast between the kingdom life and the natural life. But he goes on to make another contrast. And you find that here in uh, Matthew chapter 6. And, uh, excuse me, verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through chapter 6, verse 9. And here we find a series of contrasts that are listed in these kinds of terms. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Now, you can feel the contrast. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Definitely big contrast. And so the kinds of things that you have heard said are things like, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But Jesus says, I tell you what, you shall not be angry. He takes it to a whole new level. He says, you shall not commit adultery is what you've heard, but I say to you, don't look lustfully. The one who has, has committed adultery already in his heart. He says, um, you've heard that it was said, you shall give a certificate of a divorce. He says, I say, you shall not divorce except for the cause of adultery. He says, You've heard it was said, you shall not swear falsely. I tell you, you shall do what you say you will do. If you say it, do it. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall take an eye for an eye. But I say to you, go the second mile. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. I say to you, love your enemy. 
So there's a reason why I don't measure up, I find. Because every time I measure myself against the law of God, as difficult as the original law was, Jesus says that's not really the sum total of it. To really understand how this applies to you, he says, we have to go not just to the outward manifestations of law-keeping, we have to go to the heart. And so over and over, Jesus is pointing out to the people who hear him, and by application to us, that we don't measure up. There's a reason we aren't happy. There's a reason we don't measure up. And Jesus goes on to say then, there's a reason that you're not satisfied. And he says this in chapter 6. And in the first verses here of chapter 6 that we're going to be getting to in a moment in the Lord's Prayer. He says, motives matter. Beauty is more than skin deep. Listen to what he's doing here in the beginning of chapter 6. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So can you feel this? There is a difference between the transient rewards of being seen by others and the eternal rewards of being seen by God. But the real point is that it matters what motivates. It matters what motivates. Now, if you think that you've passed the first two tests, um, Jesus takes us here to a place of utter impossibility. If you weren't desperate before we got here in the contrast that Jesus has painted in the Sermon on the Mount, you should be now. Because at least for me, as I look at my, my experience, my life, I, I'm not sure that I can name one righteous deed that I have ever done with 100% pure motives. I, I would like to say that that's not true. But I'm not sure I can look in the rearview mirror at anything that I have done and say my perfectly pure motivation was just for love of God and to serve Christ Jesus. So essentially what Jesus has done to this point is bring us to the point of absolute, total desperation. We have nothing to offer. We cannot do this on our own. In one sense, what Jesus has done is take us to the mirror, to look at ourselves in the mirror. But this is a truth-telling mirror. It doesn't just tell me what I think I look like or what I wish I looked like. He's taken us to the mirror to show us what we look like to him. And what we look like to him, as we hear through these first three contrasts, is, well, it's not too pretty. But he's done something else that makes it even more challenging that makes it an even more stark contrast. He's not only taken us to the mirror, but alongside that mirror, he has affixed a portrait. And it's a portrait of an absolutely perfect person. So now I have the mirror, and I can see my own image looking back at me, and it's not pretty. And right next to it, if I just glance slightly to the left, 
I see the image of someone who is absolutely 100% perfect. So now I don't just have the ability to look at my picture in the mirror, my, my reflection in the mirror, and say, well, you know, um, my nose is a little crooked, but, you know, other people have noses that are more crooked. Because this is the game we play, right? We start comparing, well, um, you know, my reflection in the mirror isn't too great, but I think a little makeup will cover it. Or, or you know, um, I can probably comb my hair and will at least get by and, and get that bald spot covered. Right? So we can think of all the things that we can do to adjust, but Jesus doesn't give us that latitude. He doesn't give us that room to make adjustments and to make comparisons and to make excuses about the way that we look when we look into the perfect word of God in these three great contrasts. Because he puts his own picture next to it. Because what you're really hearing here in the Sermon on the Mount in these three great contrasts is not only you can't make it, but you are seeing the picture of the only one who ever did make it, so to speak, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So he's giving you both the problem and the answer to the problem in the same breath. And I hope you're hearing that. So he's leaving you desperate not to leave you without hope. But he's leaving you desperate for the purpose of pointing you to the portrait on the left, to himself, that you see that in him, in this utter desperation where I have failed in every category, and, and for me, in every category, I can say, no, I am a complete failure in every one of these categories. I'm a failure when it comes to reasons why I'm not happy. I'm a failure when it comes to reasons why I don't measure up. I'm a failure when it comes to my motivation, and that leads me to a dissatisfaction that I can't seem to shake but I also know that Jesus actually is all of those things that I need. And he is the agent of change. So now we come to this prayer, and it's within this prayer that Jesus gives us some additional contrasts. And I want to just quickly move through these because I want to get to some thoughts that will help us to shape what we're going to be talking about for the, for the next couple of messages here. So we're looking at the contrast, but we're also looking at the two problems Jesus notes, particularly in regard to prayer. So he's led us through some great contrast. Now he comes in verse 5 of chapter 6 to prayer itself. And like the problem of giving in the first verses of chapter 6, he now addresses the problems in prayer in these words. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, this is the second problem, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So here are the two problems. The first is the problem of putting religious reputation ahead of relational intimacy. You can hear that here in verses 5 through 6. In verses 5 through 6, this was really the Jewish problem. The Jewish problem was that they thought that they could perform and show by their performance to please God. So they are putting on a show. They're demonstrating just how good they really are. But notice that, God, that Jesus says, you're not demonstrating anything about your goodness to God. You're just demonstrating something to other people who may or may not 
tip their hat and say, well, now there's a really religious guy. Because they're standing on the corner and praying so that they might be seen of men. And Jesus said, well, you, you, you got your reward, but not from my father. And then he goes on to talk about that second problem. And the second problem is religious fervor versus relational confidence. So you hear that as the Gentiles, he says, they heap up many phrases. They, they pour on the words, bring on more words in order that they can get through to God. So this brings us to a twofold understanding of this problem. And I want to show this to you. It's the first that we tend to pray for ourselves because we don't really understand that God sees everything. Jesus says God does see everything. He knows what's going on in your closet with the door shut. Yes, he sees your heart. So we like to use religious tools to try to help make ourselves look good to the people around us, even maybe to make ourselves look good to ourselves. We use these tools to try to make it seem like we're okay without addressing the problems that Jesus just has been taking us through to this point. So we're trying to be happy and to look good without addressing the root problem of hearts that are absolutely and in that sense irreparably broken. But Jesus says... That's not the way that we come to God in prayer. He's not buffaloed by your apparent righteousness. And in fact, your apparent righteousness stands in the way of you experiencing real change. Your apparent righteousness, the things you think about yourself or the things that you're trying to convince others to think about you, is actually one of the most dangerous possible things that you can experience because it keeps you from ever getting to the place of change. In any area, any habit that you're trying to break, any particular need that you have that you know must change, this is one of the ways that you will tend, that I will tend to try to salve my own wound. Here's the problem. You remember that Jesus said, it is not the well who go to seek the physician, but the sick. You remember that? And that's really obvious. I don't go to the doctor because I want to sit in a waiting room and just stand there with funny sterile smells coming out from wherever and wait for him to poke me. I only go if I'm sick. And I think I really need help. So Jesus is saying through this, you need help. You need help that you cannot give yourself. And then he's secondly saying that we pray sometimes to our idols because we don't understand that God knows everything. So we don't we pray for ourselves, for our own benefit, to try to make ourselves look good. We pray for our purposes because we don't understand that God sees everything. But we pray to our idols because we don't understand that God knows everything. Can I just say that the purpose of prayer... Remember the problem, the, Jew, the Gentile problem is they're multiplying words. The purpose of prayer is not to give God new information. Really. We are not informing God of things he didn't know. So we're not here just to enlighten him on a particular trouble that I have that he's discovering for the very first time. We are here for the purpose of aligning ourselves with God's plan. We are here to line ourselves up with his purposes. And we don't have to say it over and over to him to make that happen. You, you might remember in the Old Testament how the... Um, prophets of Baal were brought before Elijah on the mount called Carmel. You remember that? 
And do you remember what happened as the great contest ensued? Elijah said, you guys go first. There's 400 of you. And so they did. And they began in the morning before the altar, waiting for fire to come. And not just waiting, but dancing around the altar, calling upon Baal, cutting themselves with knives, bleeding all over to try to get the attention of their God. And Elijah says, oh, oh, maybe your God's asleep. Oh, maybe he's on a vacation. Oh, maybe your God... And of course, the people were dancing around with many, many words for hours, trying to get their point across to a God that didn't exist. We don't pray like that, Jesus says. Because, and and are you getting why? Because we have a God who is not stone or wood. We have a God who actually does hear us. We don't just need to multiply our words in order to give him new information. Instead, we need to cultivate the desperation that clings to God and gives our own hearts the room to align with his heart. So Jesus says, don't pray like the Jews, standing and trying to get attention, blocking themselves from any real and effective change. Don't pray like the Gentiles who are actually just multiplying words because they're not even talking to a real God. Speak to the true and living God and expect that that true and living God will answer. So since God knows everything, what good does it do to pray? Well, again, I want to remind you that the objective for praying is not to inform God. It's to engage with his purposes so that my will and God's will are woven together in one. That's actually the idea of waiting in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 40, for instance, we find that those who wait for God uh, find that their strength is renewed, and they mount up with wings like eagles, and they run and are not weary, and they walk and are not faint. That word for waiting has the idea of being bound together, possibly even by twisting. It's almost like making a rope, isn't it? And so we're finding that What are the strands in the rope? Well, the strands in the rope are my will and God's being twisted together so that they are indistinguishable. So God is working for a great purpose. We don't pray just to try to get what we want. We don't pray to inform God of something new. We pray because in praying, we're made to align with God. And then I think we could ask for the second question, so what's the magic formula for prayer? And I'll be honest, some people have taken the Lord's Prayer as a magic formula that we then just recite. And there's nothing wrong, let me assure you, with just reciting the Lord's Prayer if, if you are actually praying it and not just reciting it. So the Gentile problem is a problem we face still today We become confused on this point and start just reciting our requests to God. Sometimes it becomes really, really rote. Uh, I was, um, as a a grade schooler in the school I attended, we had the Pledge of Allegiance every day. And, um, And we also, since I went to a Christian school, prayed. And I still remember the embarrassment of coming to the end of the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation, indivisible, on one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, in Jesus' name, amen. That's what I ended with. 
in front of my whole class. And you know why I did? Because I wasn't thinking anymore. I was just tacking on words that kind of all flowed together in my catalog of rote responses that I just kind of issue on certain cues. That's what Jesus is saying prayer is not. Prayer is not about just a rote response. And when we come to this prayer, and I can see that we're not going to get as far through this message as I was hoping uh, this morning, so we're going to stop here. But as we come to this prayer, I want you to understand that we are not here to just recite words to God. We're not here to make ourselves look good. Look, I can quote the whole Lord's Prayer from memory and backwards. Right? That's not the point. That's the, that's the Jewish problem, that we're trying to make ourselves look good, that we're praying for our own purposes, for ourselves, as if God really doesn't see and we don't want to practice the Gentile problem, just heaping up words. We just kind of get into the pattern. We say, Lord, bless the missionaries and bless the pastor and bless the... Because, because we do that. And then we can say, anyone asks, just like, oh, no, I started my morning with prayer. Or that we just recite the Lord's Prayer together. And that's a fine thing if you are actually praying it. My hope through this series, which um, maybe I need to ask for four messages, but... Uh, uh, through this series is that we would actually be able to engage with God on what Jesus says about prayer for this purpose. As we understand the prayer that Jesus is here about to teach us, as we really understand that, we are brought into connection with the person in the portrait who is the only power, the only authority for real and effective change. When we think about discipleship, as we've been talking about this morning, we're thinking about becoming more like the one who is our teacher. That's what Jesus says the goal and the nature of discipleship really is. Our goal, to be like Jesus. The nature of discipleship, to be changed. So as we do this, as we come into this, I want us to be connecting with the character of God. Pastor Kyle put that we are getting a high view of God. And that's exactly what we're doing because interestingly enough, when Jesus teaches us this prayer, what he's really teaching us is who God is and who we are in God's sight. So this morning, uh, even though we've really only started uh, this um, series here and uh, there are more things that I would love to teach you, uh, because of the time we're going to stop, but I want you to be going away thinking, am I really as desperate for change as Jesus has pressed us to consider here in those three first contrasts in the Sermon on the Mount? Am I really allowing the desperate nature of my situation to sink into my heart? Do I really, if I really look in the mirror, can I allow the brokenness of my image, the deformities and the distortions of my character to come back to me, not to sink me, but to set my eyes on the portrait. We don't change unless we believe that we need to change. We just don't even begin to go to the doctor. So this morning, I'm encouraging you, let's, in the next few messages, go to the doctor together and find out what it is that Jesus says will modify, will change, will alter behaviors that we thought were unchangeable, things that we thought could not be changed, habits that we didn't think that we could break, Problems that we didn't think that we could resolve. Uh, relationships that we thought would not ever be able to be put back together. I invite you to join us looking at how desperate they are. Not playing Pollyanna and pretending that they aren't desperate. 
But in fact, looking at their desperation and preparing to see how God wants to work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're asking this morning that you would, in fact, bring us to looking at the mirror of your word in all the clarity and, in this case, in all the need that is represented by these three great contrasts in the Sermon on the Mount to this point. And I pray that you'd prepare us by being desperate enough, by being uh, recognizing that we're sick enough to come to the place where we are ready to go to the doctor and to see the Lord Jesus himself in all his perfection, in all his beauty, as the one who can, in fact, change us into his likeness. This is true discipleship. It's where it all really ends. And we pray that you'd help us toward this end for Jesus' sake. Amen.